Futurize goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in technology, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trond Arne Undheim, futurist and author. In episode 52 of the podcast, the topic is the future of peer-to-peer. Our guest is Michelle Bowens, founder of the P2P Foundation and author of Peer-to-Peer, The Commons Manifesto, published by Westminster Press in 2019, and also available for free download on a Creative Commons license. In this conversation, we talk about how the world may have reached a tipping point where the balance between centralized and distributed activity, as well as for-profit and non-for-profit activity, have overreached their boundaries. In Bowen's analysis, historically when this happens, with civilizations such as the Mayans or the Chinese, a reversal of polarity happens and society moves into healing mode. The difference this time is that the system is global and that we have nowhere else to go. Our challenge now is whether we are capable of living within planetary boundaries. Bowen's, in this respect, subscribes to a functionalist pulse wave theory of cyclical change. Michelle, how are you doing today? I'm fine. I'm uh, in northern Thailand uh, as we speak. Um, so this is like the rainy season, but it's still quite hot and humid. Uh, so we complain about that. <laughs> <laughs> Every place has its complaint. And uh, right. and it's all about the relationship, I guess, which we'll talk a little bit about your, uh, it, you know, it's, it's about re- the rela- relationship with nature. And it's about your inner balance, and uh, yeah. and it's about the external uh, things around you yeah. uh, coming from the human side. These three forces are are important to what we're we're about to talk about in in terms of peer to peer. Michelle, you have a, a a fascinating background. I have listened to some of the talks you've given, and and your life story is very interesting. And I wouldn't come close to summarizing it in you know in thirty seconds here. But you've worked for a long time on basically the philosophy of the commons and thinking about the future, thinking about uh, what got us here. Yeah. Uh, and really it's a, what I would see as kind of a, philo- a new philosophy for, for humanity itself. Uh, that would be one way to characterize it. Um, for the benefit of everyone, because I'll link up your bio so they can read about you know your fascinating background, but what one thing would you point to in your background that has led you to become such a vocal uh, defender and theorist of the commons? That's that's a bit difficult to say, but um, uh, I want to make a little uh, story about that. Um, so William James says there are two kinds of people. Uh, the ones that, you know, they're born in a nice family, nice environment, good historical period, and they pretty much find their way uh, in society immediately. You know, they they have the right framing and it works for them. And then you have some people, and unfortunately, <laughs> at least in the beginning, uh, you know, they you're born and you say this is something wrong here. You know, the the operating system is not working, right? And these people who are originally very unhappy, they at some point in their life they go through a crisis. And that's where the word, you know, born again comes from, twice born. So, you know, you you go through a crisis and then somehow your psyche reorganizes and you find some, you know, your calling. And so what he would say is that 
because he studied um, in a book called The Varieties of Religious Experience, he studied all the reformers and they all went through this, right? So this is like a common, a common point. And so I think I belong to this kind of people where, you know, I started in a very, very unhappy uh, childhood and, and trauma, but that somehow pretty late, actually, when I was 42, I had a big crisis, but I came out of it in a completely different person. And so my question then is, okay, I, I, don't, I don't want to spend more time on myself. I want to do something. I want to do something positive for the planet. And what could that be? And so I took a two-year sabbatical, and I started looking at phase transition. So, you know, how did society change in the past? And so out of that came this discovery that the commons was a very important human institution that we had forgotten about. And I have a bit of a theory of history, um, which, you know, it simplified. But so you have periods of human history where we are going in very extractive directions. So you have a competition between empires, nations, whatever it is. Uh, and in order to win, you have to overuse your resource base. You have no choice. That's how you win. And so inevitably, you reach a point where the cost of maintaining your powers is overstrips the resources that you have to do so, and then you go into collapse or decline. And what we see is that in these periods, civilizations go through healing periods, regenerative periods. And that the commons is a key institution to do that. I can give you an example. Between the more or less the 16th and the 18th century, the Togukawa period in Japan, after a period of enormous strife, the emperor took power. He kind of nationalized the forest. So the, the commons, the forest became a commons of the emperor. That, and for two centuries, Japan lived in harmony with its regional planetary boundaries. Right. And then the West came and they said, OK, now we have to get stronger because otherwise we will be wiped out. And that that put an end to it. So they went themselves into an extractive period in the 19th century. But you, so you see that kind of pulsation between extractive and regenerative. And the key role of the commons in the regenerative periods is what I'm convinced of. Uh, and so now we are in a situation where there is a poly crisis like a series of cascading systemic crises um, at the world scale. So there's nowhere to escape, no other place to go. And that means that the commons is now basically on the world agenda. Uh, so that's kind of the the core of my uh, work. Michelle, can you just for the benefit of, of, of the, you know, of the listener, because the commons is, a somewhat murky term and also peer-to-peer -peer is something that we have now come to understand a little bit in the context of computer science and uh, uh, you know things like that but you the way you are using these two terms goes a little bit beyond that can you define it quite sharply for for us yeah. so that we actually know uh, exactly what you're talking about when you say the comments right so, so let me maybe start with peer-to-peer -peer. so you know, in computer science, peer-to-peer -peer is any organization where every computer or every agent is totally autonomous to create relations with other agents without having to go through some kind of hierarchical or centralized 
uh, server or authority. And this is for computers, but what I'm saying is the same for people. We have now a technology which allows us to scale free cooperation. So you look at Linux, maybe, I don't know, 25,000 people in the world are working on it, but the average team is four people. So hundreds of companies are working together on one common infrastructure and it works and they can, it's used to go to the moon and, you know, in the rockets. Uh, and that's new. You know, that was before that we needed the hierarchies to do this. And now we can do this kind of this. Uh, and this means there is a shift in our society to open collaborative systems. Right. So and, and that's you, you can see that everywhere. That's one thing. Now, one one thing we can do with that dynamic is actually create shared resources. So, for example, open source software is software that is open and free for everybody to use. And that's that's what the commons is. So commons is about neutralization. So you're taking a resource and managing it collectively, but not by the state in an authoritarian way, but by the participants themselves. So typically for commons is multi-stakeholder arrangements. That's a typical governance modality for commons. So it can be an urban commons. You can say, let's, let's do a renewable energy co-op you know, in the, in our village, uh, let's do shared mobility, not Uber, but, you know, like a corporation or an association that does shared mobility. Uh, or it can be software, it can be shared design, it can be many, many things. And this is coming back. This is, this is re-emerging as a, as a, as a part of our society. But so Michelle, the comments refers not just to the resource that's being, uh, communalized it refers also to the governance structure yeah of, there's three things of so the, the resource join in the resource yes. the community yep. or stakeholder right. group and to have its own governance that's that's key so it's not governed by the state and it's not governed through the competition of private players it's groups of people making deals with each other to to manage a common resource and can you clear up for me, because this is sometimes confusing, what is the relationship between this notion of democracy, which is, you know, very embedded, obviously, in society right now, and the commons? Did the commons arise out of a democratic uh, tradition, or is it the other way around, so that uh, democracy arose out of the commons and, and vice versa, or which way does this work? Well, in, in the feudal system, you know, the pre-capitalist systems, the commons would actually be probably the only place where there was democracy. So you had the feudal system, you know, with the king and the dukes and the counts. That was not democratic. Uh, but what you had is in the cities and in the rural areas, there were commons. So, for example, you know, the free cities of the Middle Ages, you know, they were run by coalitions of guilds. And guilds were kind of commons because the machinery was held by the guild, right? Of course, it was layered. You had, you know, the apprentices, the fellows, and the masters, but the masses were democratic. Like the, it was a, you know, multi-level democracy. And of course, in the rural areas, it was a bit the same because these were hierarchical societies. So maybe only the elders, you know, would uh, would manage it, maybe. But it was democratic in that sense, right? It was relatively democratic. And that's important because even in, in our societies, what we call democracy is really voting every four years for who is going to rule us, right? And then we delegate our power to representatives. Um, but in the commons, is it's the people themselves who have a stake 
who have to come to these agreements. So it's it's a school of democracy. That's why I think it's so important. Mm -hmm. I have another question before we go deeper on this, uh, what, what I believe you call the wave pulse theory that you were just explaining to us. Yeah. Um, some people are arguing, and, and there's sort of two parts of my, my question. They're sort of saying, well, we are actually now maybe because of technology and the ownership and the discussion around the uh, big tech companies in, in some sort of a post-democratic state, like realistically, governments are, have for a while not really run things, right? Yeah. And, and their proof point would be, uh, and this is fairly straightforward, that the ownership of very, very crucial infrastructure, which I think goes into your notion of a commons or, or, or not a commons, but, you know, it's a very crucial resource. Let's say social media or, uh, you know, a lot of different digital platforms are now not owned in any meaningful way by governments. And they're also not controlled or regulated really by them, which is very unusual, at least in, in the democratic era with welfare states and such, where you know most infrastructure that has meant anything to a large amount of people has always been regulated. And then there, of course, has been a deregulation phase where we have started to trust other actors. How does your theory uh, latch on to this stage of techno-capitalism? But it actually is, it, in my view, it's actually directly related to the commons. So like original capitalism was about enclosure of the commons, right? The capitalism starts when the commons of the farmers are fenced because sheep make more money than men. And so the people have to be uh, chased away. Um, and that's what's, you know, one of the, the main causations of, of capitalism. So originally, capitalism is against the commons. And for example, Napoleon, you know, would completely wipe out the commons in the constitution and in, in, in the legal code. That's why we've forgotten about it. It was, you know, capitalism was a war against the commons in, in, in fundamental ways. Mm -hmm. um, and so what a capitalist company does is hire people, make them work, and then, you know, it, it keeps a surplus and that's the profit, right? But look at Google and Facebook and Uber, and Airbnb, what are they doing? They're not hiring people to work. Yeah, a few. But basically what they do is they let us exchange and common, you know, exchange our communication. And they, so I call them netarchical capitalists, or sometimes I call them Proudhonian uh, capitalists, because Marx said, you know, uh, the surplus comes from extracting uh, profit from people. And Proudhon says, no, the surplus comes from people working together, right? And so Google lets us exchange knowledge and extracts uh, profit from that. Uber lets drivers and, and passengers exchange rides. Airbnb lets people exchange apartments. They don't make the apartments. They don't buy the taxis. They don't do anything but exploit human cooperation. So, in so you your see what view, I'm trying to, uh, to say, right? No, so, I see yeah. what you're trying to say, but I'm trying to understand whether that means that not only does it map onto commons, but you're actually, uh, I guess, slightly surprisingly, you're seeing at the moment they they could be liberating forces the way that a lot of people saw them initially. And you're sort of still seeing them that yeah. way in the sense that they are, uh, which is actually counterintuitive to what I would have thought about yeah. your thinking, right? Because a lot of critical theorists, I don't know if you would put yourself in that camp, but they would start to say right now that, you know, this techno-capitalism has gone awry and it is 
no longer emancipatory at all because it actually is extracting unfairly from That's us I'm saying the same resources thing. that oh you are yes okay. yes because what happens is take Facebook it allows us two billion people to exchange you know knowledge every day over their networks right um, but nobody gets paid for co-creating the value and that's because and so that's a problem as more and more of a society moves to that model less and less of the surplus is coming back and this is ironically why techno capitalists are for the basic income because they see this they see that through their practices and automation they are you know uh, disowning uh, more and more people and and they make more profit but at the same time they're destroying the consumption capacity of the people right so that's why they are also in favor of the basic income in their own interest mm -hmm. but i would say that the real progress would be to recognize that this is a commons and to see facebook and google as multi-stakeholder owned and governed entities so we create a value our data create a value and we should be recognized for that so let's have Got you it. know governance mechanisms that say the users, the workers, the funders, you know, all the stakeholders together decide how to manage uh, these, what are now, you know, fake and exploitative commons into real commons. Got it. So, I mean, in any case, what I think uh, many would agree right now is that there is a crisis of legitimacy of governance just because we there are new things being created in society whether they you know have common spaces or not and they are not fairly um the the ownership and the uh outcomes of of many of these uh kind of externalities whatever you want to call them the value yep. created is not uh governed in a fair and just way and uh, and the value is is thus not kind of spread in a fair and equitable manner so um but I want to go back to this wave pulse theory of yours. How do you get your data for uh, for such sweeping sort of statements? Because right. you know it it is wonderful to take society you know in these long cycles and start looking at at historical forces and then theorize a little bit about how and when this now applies to you know this decade or the next right. decade. But what is the fundamental data that you use uh, to? To, to get these get right. to these so it's, it's a synthesis, waves, these critical yeah, points. It's a synthesis of different uh, research areas. So one is biophysical economics. So these are a group of economists that say real economics has to take into account physical realities. It's not just about money floating around. You need energy and resources. And so they look at at you know the statistical series that show the usage you know, the kind of thermodynamic basis of human life. And so, and they see this, right? They, there are books about that. Then there is a very interesting uh, school uh, that's very precise and he has a whole database about it. That's Peter Turchin and his uh, cliodynamics. And they already have published a book called Secular Cycles where they see, and in my view, prove it, you know, to... Uh, to a significant amount of satisfaction that this cycle worked in agricultural civilizations. And they, you know, they studied Russia and different areas and they, they can show this, that this happened. Um, 
then there is Karl Polanyi who studied this cycle within capitalism. And today there's a lady called Carlota Perez, which has continued this work. It's called uh, Technolo Technological Revolutions and Financial Capital. So within capitalism, there's also a cycle that Polanyi calls the Lib Lab. So 30 years of expansion, which is good for labor, you know, social progress. And then you reach a crisis point because capital is not making enough profit. So you have a counter-revolution, Reagan-Thatcher. Um, and that works for a while and then ends with a, a demand crisis. So you have first the supply crisis. Capital is, you know, is not doing well enough. And then after another 30 years, you have a demand crisis because people are over debt indebted. And so within capitalism, you can see that already six or seven times. It's called the conservative cycle. Yeah, more or less. Uh, so there is data. There is there is data. Of course, in social science, it's always, you know, it's not hard physical science. So it's always open to discussion. And But I think it has a, you know, it's, it's not just like... Uh, pure speculation there there is there is research that that shows that mm -hmm. can you take this down a little bit to kind of a simplified form that shows up in today's politics around the world so i know that you know in your analysis you you, you know it's not just sort of two two different sort of political sides left and right it's it's a little bit beyond left and right but in in you know, so the commons represents this sort of third way in a certain sense so yeah. you know you have big big capital and sort of conservative capitalism i guess on one side and then and then you have the libertarian challenge you call it but but then commons and this uh, sort of sharing uh, open source uh, based model is is a third model why is there such a distinction in your mind between libertarianism and, uh, I guess, traditional socialism also, and this yeah. commons-based approach? Why, why is there a distinction? That's maybe some, sometimes a little hard to to keep apart, well, I, I, and I, a lot of I, conservatives I, don't see it that way. Yeah, but so I, I want to be get you a concrete example, which would be the blockchain world. Yeah. So what what's the okay. difference between between the libertarian view and the more the socialist view, if you like? A libertarian sees the world of individuals and individuals make deals with each other and that creates society. A socialist sees groups of people fighting each other, you know, labor against capital and farmers, whatever, and they make deals, right? So that's, that's the difference. So for example, if you design blockchain, which comes straight out of the libertarian school of thought, you know, Austrian economics and all the ideas of the economy, then you say, okay, let's do smart contracts between individual people. Let's do commodity currencies. Uh, so in other words, all your design principles are based on the idea of an idealized and free market. And so everything in the blockchain is going to resemble that. You're actually designing it into your technical infrastructure. Now, if you're on the left, you would say, well, why don't we make, instead of smart contracts, we make Ostrom contracts, you know, the ability to create social charters. Why, instead of commodity currencies, don't we design uh, multi, uh, mutual credit currencies? Why don't we design things like Fishcoin, which take into account externalities? You know, so nature is incorporated in the value of the money, it's not ignored. Mm -hmm. So you see, so this is from your worldview and interest, you come to different conclusions. 
and and that's and so that we, what we have today is different technologies competing with each other and creating these different life worlds. Though so you have netarchical capitalism, the worlds of Google, then you have all these libertarian infrastructures now with the, coming with the blockchain, and you have all kinds of you know more progressive oriented people. So I work, for example, because I'm more in that side. I work with, um, I'm connected to EXA, Economic Space Agency, uh, Commons Engine, Commons Stack, Holochain. So those are all more kind of uh, technology infrastructure we take into account, you know, social and ecological values and realities. Uh, you know, it's interesting what you're saying because to many people, blockchain is so new that the full ramification of its underlying philosophy is a little hard to grasp. And I think to to most people who are having enough trouble basically understanding why this is so transformative, when you're saying that <laughs> that it is a political project. Yeah, but it can be um, both. I mean, you know, it's it's driven by their own utopia. We all have our utopias, and so libertarians sure. have, have their utopia. My my critique on their utopia is that they assume that if everybody starts on an equal basis, you know, that the world stays that way, right? So they, so you could say that the social base of libertarianism are independent, autonomous people. You know, who have to work, you know, in software, make their own projects. And so they, that's the way they see the world as individuals trying to make it. Uh, socialism came out of the labor movement, right? Which is where groups of people pushed together in a factory and having to fight, you know, making themselves stronger through association because otherwise they wouldn't get decent wages. So it's a different social basis. Um mm -hmm. But uh, so I'm, you know, I don't want to be too ideological either. I think the blockchain has, you know, but first of all, it's based on open source. So they right. actually creating commons. Second, it's it's based, um, you know, on this individual liberty, and it creates open collaborative systems where people can come in and out freely. And there's some designs against, you know, monopolization by a single company. So. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, I live in Chiang Mai, which is like the world capital of digital nomads, at least until COVID. We had 25,000 people here working remotely, you know. And so this is like a libertarian paradise. We had four blockchain meetings a week here last year. Um, and I went to a meeting that was kind of incredible where, you know, the, the guy who spoke said the problem in Chiang Mai is we can't find anybody who wants to work for money anymore. You know, because a lot of them have succeeded in, uh, you know, amassing blockchain, uh, Bitcoin and Ether, Ether and, and all these things. So they, you know, they have enough money to work a few years. And so the paradox is because they're free to do that, they start working on their passionate projects. And a lot of them is progressive. You know, because you can be a libertarian and have, you know, positive dreams for the planet. So I, I so the one I want to show people that technology is value driven, but I don't want to do it in a way, you know, like a politically ideological way and say, these are bad people and here are the good ones. That's, no, I understand I don't want that. to do that, right? It's So Michelle, uh, we're going to, uh, you know, end with a, one more question and we'll, we'll cover more ground hopefully in a, in a later talk. My, my last question for you today is in, 
as you're looking into the future and, and the future, I have to be careful with you because the future could be a hundred years ahead. You're, you're such a kind of a stretchy thinker, but if you just think about the next few years, even in the next decade, I understand that you think we are now in this downward crisis spiral, yes. but you do see some space for, for, for openings. Can you give us a, a, just a quick view of where you think the world's, uh, politics and and generally the state of the world is right now and what, what what do you think will happen you know relatively short term so within this decade right so so the way i see it, you know 2008 was the first systemic shock but they kind of smoothed it over you know with helicopter money and and trillions of dollars in, in aid to the financial sector but then with COVID, all the weakened systems start really unraveling now fairly quickly. And we have, you know, probably 10 years in front of us of deep fragmentation uh, with, you know, very strong geopolitical risk of, you know, conflict between the U.S. and China. So this is going to be like a very difficult period. You know, think about the 70s for something similar. Um Hopefully, after that, we will have at least like a a, a temporary uh, set of solutions. And I think that that probably what is going to happen is that capitalism is going to integrate peer to peer, and uh, and uh, you know and green, uh, not perfectly, uh, but good enough to have some kind of like. Uh, and and what I'm thinking is that will be the so now we are creating all these seed forms because people are very motivated you know, they have to survive so in periods mm-hmm. of of, of uh, danger you know and this is what is wrong with the American imagination when you know you always think that people go back to barbarism you know uh, all these books and movies is always about you know they no people actually return to community in times of danger. Because you can't survive alone. You you know, you can be a survivalist camper with 10 guns. I'm sorry. You know, if you have 300 people coming after you, you're dead. You know what I mean? So community is the way to go through difficult periods. And this is what people will tell you, you know, that come to World War One and Two, is that in a way, in those periods where periods of where people came back together. And, you know, they have a memory about this. Look, uh, I'm just, this could go in many directions, but just a last one on that. So what does that mean for for the governance levels short term? People will go back to community because we, you know, this is an uh, unsafe, uh, you know, and risky sort of period. Is this going to mean more or less globalism, more or less nationalism, and more or less kind of uh, lo- localism and, and community around cities and 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 even smaller community? Like you, you, you spent some time thinking about Chiang Mai and where you are right now. Yeah. Are are people going to kind of rally together on all these levels simultaneously uh, in order to cut this sort of bargain with green and uh, you know and capitalism and 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 this crisis or so you, you, where is this going to manifest itself okay you have to, you have to distinguish two different levels so one is the geographical level and i i foresee a strengthening of the nation state paradoxically because that's the one remaining functional form of community uh, right, and so that's what Trump represents in Brexit, and you see that a significant number of people 
want to go back to their own community. They are becoming wary of foreigners. Uh, you know, they would say various things. There's too many of them, whatever they say. But this is represents like a re retrenchment around the nation state. So I think this will happen in the short term. Uh, and this is both, you know, like happening, but it's also very dangerous because if we have nation states fighting each other for scarce resources, that means war, right? At the same time, I think there will be a lot of localism. But I think the localism today, and, I, and it may sound paradoxical, but it will be cosmolocal. So uh, this is the second level, this level of virtuality. And the level of virtuality is just as real as the level of geography. So I think that we will have planetary guilds. You should tell that to President Trump, who today actually denounced having a virtual presidential debate. I found it actually a pivotal moment in history because I do think, uh, and you know, we don't have time to really discuss what this means, but just a little statement maybe from you. I think this is probably the last time a politician can get away with saying that a virtual, and it's not even a virtual because the, the people would yeah. be live in a room and the two presidential candidates were suggested to be apart. And he says, well, that's a waste of time. It's not real. Being on the computer is not real. So it sort of <laughs> flies in the face of this notion that you're saying we're entering this era, but that is actually very real, this cosmo-local. Yeah. So the, the um, reality I don't know of how much place and the right. reality of flows Right, and there's no competition. I have six minutes, so right. I, I we can finish this theme. So yep. the reality of place, it's real, but the reality of flows is just as real. There's no competition. The question is, how do we mesh them together? Think about the Middle Ages in Europe, a very decentralized place. You know, no strong empire, many kings, many dukes, many counts, often fighting it out. And then you had the cities. And what happened in the cities, the guilds were moving around. Yeah, a city was not just local, like a cathedral. They would go from one place to another to build the cathedrals, right? And the Catholic Church was not local. They, you know, they had the congregations, you had, so you had a, a mix, paradoxically, a mix in the Middle Ages between, on the one hand, very local, you know, and of course the farmers didn't move much. Uh, but you had an intellectual class that were moving around all the time. You look at their bi biographies of, you know, Aquinas and all these people, they were traveling, right? And right. and exchanging books. And, and so this is, and a successful place is also a place that successfully attracts flows, right? And that was already true with capitalism. But I think what we need to do is, so as commoners, so why, why should we see each other as commoners? Because a commoner is not part of the capital labor dependency relationship. He's somebody who constructs something together, right? So you see yourself as a builder of something. And today building something, even if you do permaculture, which is very local, you're connected to the global permaculture community. And we have to build these global entities that can be strong enough to withstand both government power and private power. This is why the nation state is weak today because you know global capital is much stronger than the nation state. But I think we can build global planetary guilds, you know, that have all the knowledge. I mean, today people outside of corporations have much more knowledge than people inside of corporations. Networks can beat corporations, and and so this is 
I think, one of the strategies we have to follow. Michelle, this is hopefully not the end of our conversation. We'll, we'll retrace these uh, steps a little bit later. I thank you so much, and I will link up, you know, all of your work that I can uh, uh, get hold of, uh, so the listeners can can start exploring some of the very important topics you bring up. I thank you for your time today, and um, have a wonderful rest of the day. Yeah, with pleasure. Thank you so much, and see you again. Okay. All right, bye bye. So okay, I, Michelle. Yeah. So I think we, yeah, we'll we'll cut it here in a second. I know you got to go in one minute. I think this works. Uh, I, I'm going to use this. Uh, hopefully, I don't think even the delays were were significant. But if there was a, a I didn't a hear any. Delay, Once I we will... started talking, I didn't hear any. So it, no. It, so this no. was uh, perfectly fine. All right. So. We have a start. I think it's fascinating what you're working on. I uh, look forward to diving deeper. I hope you will grace me, uh, you know, another uh, talk yeah, a little bit pleasure. later. Yeah. So we'll, right. uh, we'll, we'll just get this one out soon and, uh, and we'll take it from there. <laughs> All, right. <laughs> All right. Okay. I'll, I'll let See you, you go. Take, take yeah, care. Thank you All so right. much. Bye. It's a pleasure to talk. Yeah. To you. Yeah. Likewise. T take care. You have just listened to episode 52 of the Futurized podcast with host Trond Arne Undheim, futurist and author. The topic was the future of peer-to-peer. -peer. Our guest was Michel Bowens, founder of the P2P Foundation and author of Peer-to-Peer, -Peer, The Commons Manifesto, published by Westminster Press in 2019 and also available for free download on a Creative Commons license. In this conversation, we talked about how the world may have reached a tipping point where the balance between centralized and distributed activity, as well as for-profit and not-for-profit activity, have overreached their boundaries. In balance analysis, Historically, when this happens, with civilizations such as the Mayans or the Chinese, a reversal of polarity happens and society moves into healing mode. The difference this time is that the system is global and that we have nowhere else to go. Our challenge now is whether we are capable of living within planetary boundaries. Bowens, in this respect, subscribes to a functionalist pulse wave theory of cyclical change. My takeaway is that the commons is indeed an interesting, seemingly growing sentiment and a reaction to both big capitalism and libertarianism. A third way, if you will. I wrote about this phenomenon in my 2008 book, Leadership from Below. Arguably, an increased focus on developing the commons would help foster a more egalitarian, just and sustainable world. I found Bowen's critique of the crypto-anarchic divide between commoners and libertarians, the latter underlying blockchain, quite interesting. As I had earlier perhaps put that entire effort more in the commons camp than it deserves, because at the surface they are both about getting rid of the middleman. In any case, I suspect I'll try to get hold of Michelle again soon to continue this stimulating discussion. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurized.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. Futurized, prepare you to deal with disruption.